It's hard to believe. But once upon a time, companies like Apple and Intel were just startups. Young, fledgling companies betting big on this new thing called personal computing and the internet. Our guest today didn't just experience the renaissance that took place in Silicon Valley. He had a seat at the table. I started getting into the, the semiconductor industry and figuring it out. And that led to a very interesting story at the little, at the time, startup called Apple Computer. And uh, they were in Cupertino, California, which is also where I lived at the time. Uh, and if you've ever read the Steve Jobs biography, you remember there was a time when Steve was sort of like moved off to the side of the company. They hired a new CEO and he sort of took Steve and stuck him off in the corner and said, you know, don't bother us. We're, we're going to take it from here. So what Steve Jobs did was he started up the Mac team. That's where, this is where the Mac came from. So he made his own little team of really good engineers and they started designing and figure out what the Mac was going to be. So in the middle of that process, this is probably, I can't remember exactly the year, maybe 1982 or so, 83. Uh, they decide, the Intel sales manager in the area says, look, I got a meeting with Apple to talk about their new computer they're working on. So we, can, we got a chance to try to sell them the Intel CPU which is, at the time was called the Intel 386 chip. It's the first 32-bit version of the Intel processor. So we got, a, we got a meeting with Steve Jobs. Let's see if we can work with him. So the meeting takes place at Intel Santa Clara 6. And on our side, we had, we had a couple of the founders, Andy Grove, Gordon Moore. We had... Ted Hoff, who is the guy whose name is on the patent for a micro microprocessor, the original guy who designed the first one. We had John Crawford, who was our uh, 386 CPU designer, architect, and so on. So we had all our best guys there. Steve Jobs comes over to Santa Clara 6 with his Mac team, and including a, he, another guy he brought with him was a guy named Bill Joy, who was uh, already pretty famous for inventing something called Berkeley Unix. And he had taken the Unix operating system and done a, uh, you know, done some modifications to it and improved it. That eventually turned into the operating system for the Mac. So on Steve's side, he had some of the best software engineers on the planet. And on our side, we had most of the best hardware engineers on the planet. And they all sit down and ready, go. And this thing was like so cool. I'm sitting there watching it. I'm on the side, just kind of taking this whole thing in, like a like a world championship tennis match, just going back and forth. And the Intel guys are talking about what chip does and how it does it, why they did it. And the, then the the Mac guys will start talking about how the software should work and the operating system and how it all. And it was really detailed, way deep down in the computer software and hardware architecture. So if you're an engineering nerd like me. This was like heaven watching all this going on so this goes on for about i'd say two hours back and forth back and forth and then we get a little peek into steve jobs personality he's sitting there listening to this he's right in the middle of the table he's sitting there listening to this and he's not an engineer himself 
So I don't think he probably understood most of the conversation, but he's kind of walked, watching the interaction, looking at how these two teams are working together and trying to figure out how much work this is going to be for them to change away from their current chips they're using to the Intel chip. So finally, right in the middle of somebody talking, he just puts his hands on the table, stands up, and he says, meeting over, and walks right out the door. And we're like, we're all looking at each other. What the? And the Mac guys are saying, well, you know, that's Steve. Once he makes a decision, off he goes. And that's exactly what he did. He, he decided that day that, you know, it's just going to be too much time and effort and off track to try to switch microprocessors right in the middle of their project. So they did not do that. And, uh, of course, the Mac became a big success. We all know the story that happened there. I was incredibly excited when Mark Easley agreed to be on our show because he has worked with some of the most influential leaders of our time, from Steve Jobs at Apple to Masa Sun at SoftBank and now SoftBank's Vision Fund to John Chambers at Cisco and even Tim Draper from DFJ. Many of our listeners are familiar, but I sent out a weekly email to customers and fans of Malartu highlighting major news in business and technology each week. After three straight replies featuring riveting stories Mark had with business moguls I spoke of in the newsletter, I knew we needed to get him on the show. In this episode, I speak with Mark about how one fortuitous moment during a summer internship in the 80s catapulted him into being one of the world's leading experts on microprocessors and subsequently led him to working with the teams who laid the foundation for what our daily life runs on, the PC. Welcome to Scaling with Data. I'm Sean Steigerwald, co-founder at Malartu.co, and your host today. Although many entrepreneurs attribute a bit of luck to their success early on, not many can point to the moment it happened. As Mark looks back on his career, there's one specific conversation that he claims as the one that changed everything. What happened was I had an intern, what they call intern jobs nowadays, we used to call them summer jobs back in the 70s. This is in 1975. Uh, my dad helped me get a, a summer job with one of the companies he knew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I get up there and have no idea what they're going to want me to do when I get there. And my, my manager, a guy named Dave Hansen, he throws a book on the table and he says, well, your job this summer is to program one of these gizmos. So I put, pick up the book. It says, Intel... 4040 microprocessor. And I said, hmm, okay, first of all, what's a microprocessor? And second of all, what's a program? <laughs> and that's kind of where I started. But of course, that turned out to be a pretty lucky day because we know, all know what's happened at Intel since. But at the time, they were a little, little tiny startup, and this 4040 was their second microprocessor they ever made, a four bit, little four bit chip. And uh, I started learning how to program microprocessors and do that kind of work that day. Soon after graduating college, 
Mark realized the next revolution in technology was going to come from Silicon Valley. His friends agreed, but said he would never make it as a kid from Purdue, competing with Stanford and MIT grads. Of course, they were wrong. After I got out of Purdue, the very first job I had actually was in 1978. I was working at NCR's uh, banking terminal group in Dayton, Ohio. And again, it was the reason they wanted me to work there was because I had some experience with Intel chips and they were just starting to use Intel processors too. So that was fortunate. Uh, but at the time, you know, uh, Silicon Valley was just starting to get known as Silicon Valley. Uh, it's nothing like it is today, but it was kind of obvious to me and a lot of people that that was going to be kind of the center of the action going forward, at least if you're, you know, software and computer engineer. So I wanted to move out there and uh, Hewlett Packard interviewed me and, and I was hoping they were going to offer me a job. And some of my friends told me, well, you know what, you really don't want to go out to Silicon Valley. You're going to you're never going to make it out there. They're so smart. All those Stanford guys out there, all those MIT guys, you know, they just, they, they call, we call them gold hats. They're so smart. And I says, okay, well, let's see what happens. Well, I wound up getting a job at HP and they moved me out there. And then I got the job at Intel. Once I was at Intel, I got a license plate for my car that said gold hat. <laughs> Cause I thought I finally qualified at that point. So Mark makes it to Silicon Valley, despite the doubt from his friends, and joins the team at HP. His specialty, of course, is implementing Intel chips into HP data terminals and coaching teams on different schemas Intel has introduced. What happened after that, accidentally, would put HP at the forefront of a revolution. Again, you know, I had experience with the Intel processors. So when I got to HP, they were making these what we call data terminals in those days where everything was mini computers in those days and in order to program those or, or operate them you hooked up these data terminals well a data terminal is a screen and a keyboard and a little motherboard just like a pc uh, but we didn't know what a pc was in those days because nobody invented them yet well they they had some you know, very basic ones at the time so we used the intel reference design for the their 8088 microprocessor they had a little motherboard reference design, so we just used it to design our new data terminal. And my team started programming it. Well, it turned out that IBM, doing the PC at the time down in Boca Raton, Florida, had done the same thing. They had taken the Intel motherboard reference design and just basically used it to make the IBM original IBM PC. So in 1981, when the IBM PC comes out, uh, we popped it open and looked inside, see what they had in there. And sure enough, we figured out, well, wait a second. We've got a PC here. Just we got all the pieces and parts, exactly what IBM has. We just don't call it a PC. We call it a data terminal. So if we do a two things, few things to it, like put the operating system in and, and uh, a floppy disk drive, or we'll have a PC also. So that is how Hewlett Packard got into the accidentally kind of got into the PC business. And that group turned into their, their big PC operation years later. Soon after his experience at HP, Intel comes knocking and basically says to Mark, we want you to do what you did at HP for everyone. We want you to teach everyone how to make PCs with Intel chips. 
Now, Intel certainly does well with this, eventually winning the business with Apple years later in 2005 when Steve Jobs announces on stage at De Anza College that Macs will be powered by Intel chips. So after furthering his career at Intel, Mark decided it was time for a change and joined a company called Adaptech, still in the PC business, but selling different components. At Adaptech, he meets another familiar face, Masayoshi's son, who has since become one of the richest men in the world and the CEO of SoftBank's massive vision fund. So after Intel, I went to an IO-related company called Adaptech, and we were still in the PC business, basically selling controller boards for, for disk drives and things like that that go inside of a PC. And I, by that time, I was traveling around in Asia Pacific region and uh, developing our business out there. So pretty soon, I was interested in developing the, the kind of a, a good distributor in Japan that could help us sell our products through the retail distribution channels. You know, they had stores and stuff like that, like you could buy all these computer parts in Akihabara and things like that. And we wanted to get into that channel. So I heard about a company there that was the most popular one at the time called SoftBank. And this was run by Masayoshi's son, who was a, you know, an entrepreneur at, at the time in, in Japan. And his, he had several good things he'd done bef- up to that point, but I think when IBM PC first came out, one of the things he did was he went to see Bill Gates and he said, you know what, how about I be your distributor in Japan and I'll help you get design wins and get all your stuff put together with the NEC and Toshiba and all the big Japanese companies that want to build PCs too. So Bill Gates signed him up and that's where he, they really started to take off and he was the distributor for all the Microsoft products. And then he started becoming distributor for all kinds of PC related products, like the ones I wanted to sell. So when I went to talk to them about being our distributor, he, he came to the meeting and he took us out for lunch and he's a very interesting guy. His grandparents were Korean uh, and they'd come over and immigrated to Japan long before that. He himself was born in Japan, and he and his family members took a Japanese uh, surname called Anmoto, Anmoto-san, because it wasn't very cool to be a Korean uh, descent immigrant in Japan back in those days, especially when he was growing up, basically because of all the, the harsh, you know, Healings left over from World War II and all the things that happened there. So what Masasan told us, told me the story that over lunch that day was how he got his name back. And basically he, he was, he, he wanted to become a full real Japanese citizen, but they had rules at the time that if you had a Korean surname, or any other kind of foreign surname, basically. You couldn't be a Japanese citizen. So he, he thought, hmm, that's not a good thing. What, what can I do about this? 
So he was married to a Japanese citizen. So what he decided to do was take, he, he asked his wife to go down and legally change her name, which she did. She changed her name from whatever was Japanese and changed it to Sun, S-O-N, which is a Korean surname in Japan. So then he went back to the, uh, to the citizenship people and he says, well, I want to apply to be a citizen. And they say, well, so sorry, Mr. Sun, you can't be a citizen if you got a Korean name. And he says, are you sure? How about check that computer one more time? So they look up again and sure enough, here's his wife. She's a Japanese citizen and her name is Sun. <laughs> so they decided, okay, well, all right. We'll make an exception for you, and we'll, we'll let you become a citizen, which he did. An important theme Mark brings up when he speaks about his business in Asia is the idea that above anything else, relationships are the key to growing. While Mark notes this is especially important in Asian culture, we've heard from other managers on this podcast, like Josh Haymond and Michael Painter, that building relationships is key to landing big deals anywhere in the world. Yeah, um, I think the main thing I learned is... In Japan, all the business, almost all of it, is really built on the relationships. You know, they're not like they're not driven by price and you know features and things like that. It's really they, they want to have a limited number of people that they work with, and they want to have have people that they work with that they know and they trust, and they know are going to be a good partner for them. So that's really always their first criteria. And I got that lesson over and over again in Japan where until we could break through to on, on the relationship side of things where they thought we were a good, reliable vendor and good, reliable company and had good quality products and all of those things, we really couldn't get qualified to be a, a vendor until we went through all that. One of the, an example story of that one is we had a big, big design potential design win at company called Fujitsu and then they're they're a big disk drive company in Japan they want to use some of our controller chips with their products so I bring our CEO over to Japan to meet with their CEO because one of the last steps in the qualification process is like I say building those relationships to make sure these two companies really work together as partners so we come in for a meeting in the morning and we sit down and we start drinking tea and, and talking. And we probably just sort of like chatted about all sorts of things that had nothing to do with the business for almost, I'd say, two hours. <laughs> and we finally got a little break and my CEO pulls me aside and he says, what are we doing here, man? This is what is this? We haven't talked about pricing or delivery or anything so far. What, what's going on? I says, don't worry, don't worry, John. You're doing fine. You're doing great. You're 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 building a relationship. You know, let let them lead that discussion. They're, they're getting a lot out of this. And finally, the meeting wound up without us. The meeting was for the two CEOs to understand each other and understand their business philosophies and make sure they work could work together. And that's what we accomplished. So then we got the order after that had been done. So that was, for me, a good example of a typical example in Japan of 
building the long-term relationships, you got to be ready to put the time in. You got to be ready to put the effort in. Uh, you got to be ready to spend the time to build those. And, but once you do and you get qualified as a vendor, you're going to have a good business for a long, long time. And it's worth the effort. One day, Mark gets a call from an old colleague from Intel that he started a business in the States called POX and invites Mark to join. And so he agrees. It's time to rejoin the startup world. POX ends up going public, a coveted milestone for anyone that joins a startup in the early days. But there's one specific meeting that Mark recalls with me during our conversation about his tenure at POX, a particularly stressful run-in with another tech mogul you may have heard of. John Chambers, the 25-year veteran CEO of Cisco Systems. A good friend of mine from Intel had, had gone over and was one of the co-founders of PLX when they first got started. And they'd been in business for quite a while, let's say five, six, seven years already at the time, but they weren't growing very fast and they were still kind of in startup mode uh, until the internet came along. And some of the chips that they were designing were really good for using inside of routers. So all of a sudden they had a big opportunity in front of them, but they're a little tiny company and they had to figure out how to execute it. So my friend from Intel invited me to come over and take a look at it and give them some advice on all of that stuff. And they wound up offering me a job to take over as a VP of marketing and, and help lead their effort to turn that into a real business. We had these chips that were working well in the routers, but we're still a little little tiny company, relatively speaking. We're not Intel, that's for sure. And Cisco at the time had come out with a whole new family of routers. And our chip was designed into all of them in a certain capacity. So we're trying to get through all the qualification process and all of the reviews and working with purchasing and the QA people and engineering to get all this done and qualified and and we're getting very close i think i was thought we were getting very close to being able to actually get the order now and we're i'm having a meeting with purchasing and engineering one day at their headquarters in on first street in san jose and all of a sudden the door opens and in, in comes john chambers I was kind of surprised to see him there. Nobody told me he was coming. I, I don't think they knew he was coming either, although they might have heard, heard it. They didn't tell me. So he comes over, he shakes hands and introduces himself and says, so he sits down and he says, so as you probably know by now, we're betting the whole company on this new line of routers. So everything and every part in it has to be extremely reliable because if it isn't, we're in big trouble. So why should we bet on you? <laughs> and I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, maybe he's right. Why should they bet on a little company like mine? And, you know, if, if my chip breaks, I might, I might break Cisco. Holy smoly. But <clears throat> so I thought about it for a few minutes, and then I started explaining. Luckily, that particular chip... We were doing our fab with a fab company in Japan called Seiko Epson. So I started explaining quality control process and and what they all did at Seiko and how the Japanese were so you know focused on quality and reliability and all those kind of things. 
And I offered to bring him or bring his engineering team or his QA guys, whoever he wanted, over to Japan, give him a tour, let him review all the quality data about our chips and about the Seiko process and so on until they were, you know, satisfied it was a reliable part. So after discussing that for a while, uh, I think he was satisfied that that was going to be the correct path to figure all that out and get it done. And so he, he gave us a thumbs up at the end of the meeting so it was another one of those things maybe along the same lines of what we talked about before where that relationship building ethic for these large companies is so important they've got their set of things that they want to know and they want to understand and they want to be sure about before they go forward with any vendor and you need to be ready to respond to those things if you want to get those orders from the big companies It's not every day that you get to speak with an executive who has been through an IPO. So I was curious to hear more about that experience. Fortunately for Mark and POX, they had developed an incredibly strong asset in their investors, which happened to include famous Silicon Valley investor, Tim Draper. After the IPO, Mark decided it was time to find a school for his son and move away from the madness that had become Silicon Valley. This decision eventually led him to North Carolina, where I and John, one of the co-founders at Malartu, were fortunate enough to meet him and call him an investor and friend. When Mark is evaluating a company for his own angel investments, his focus is almost entirely on the quality of the team. He pays mind to the concept, but only as it relates to the team, and he doesn't worry much about valuation considering his preferred early stage of investment. I didn't know anything about angel investing at all. Uh, so I joined one of the local angel investor groups, which was a good idea f- for me to do. Uh, I got to learn from a bunch of more experienced investors who've been doing that for a while. We got to work together on figuring out how to vet companies and what to look at, look for. So I had to go through the learning process myself of how do you evaluate a startup and how you evaluate a management team and all those things. I knew I had a lot of opinions about that with regards to semiconductor industry and the technology stuff myself, but I didn't know how to apply that towards making investment decisions. So that's what I really learned from the Atlantis group people, which was good. Um, We had a couple pretty good successes out of that fund. Uh, Probably the biggest one is a company here in town called Channel Advisor. It's an e-commerce related startup and they did really well and they finally wound up going with and getting an IPO also. Um, but we learned a lot of hard lessons too. It's like most angel investments or early stage investments. A lot of them go under, don't make it. And uh, it's really trying to figure out which ones are got the best chance of being winners. So I found out during that process that I liked the, really early stage stuff, you know, a couple people with an idea and a plan and a strategy. So um, after the Atlantis group uh, fund was all invested out, I started doing it on my own and basically through going to events around town and networking and stuff, finding out what startups were out there, who was trying to raise money for what reasons and looking at those those teams and those startups and doing my own due diligence and deciding if I want to invest in some of those. 
basically, especially when you're in the super early stage, like I'm doing, it's looks, I'm looking at the team first. Who, who are they and what experience do they have? And do they know how, actually how to not just have an idea, but how to build a company? Have they ex had experience doing that? Oh, and also is the target market that they're going after a good fit for their background and skill set? And those are some of the things I look at. So number one, and it's a huge percentage of it is basically the team. Uh, ideas are a dime a dozen. There's tons of them out there. There's comp competition in everything everybody does. Uh, but that doesn't mean you can't have multiple winners. This is one of the things I learned in Silicon Valley. You know, when you're building the internet, there's going to be a whole bunch of companies do well. So uh, you don't have to be the only one or dominating or have a sole proprietor thing or patents or almost anything. You just have to be in a good target market that's going to grow well and execute well. And if you do that, you're going to have a pretty good company. And then I'm also looking at the, the kind of the, comp the competitive map to see what else is out there, and they better have a good understanding of handle on what else is out there and what they are competing against and where theirs is going to be differentiated compared to somebody else. And uh, if they don't understand that, that's that's a, a big red flag for me. And then, you know, lastly, at the early stage, you think a little bit about the financial structure, but there's not much anybody can do in the early stage to figure out what kind of valuation anything is. It's swag. So, uh, I don't put a lot of, you know, put a lot of thought into that part of it at the earliest stages. But what I do put a lot of thought into is their metrics about what are they trying to accomplish? Cause building any company is a step-by-step -step process of every week and every quarter, deciding what the highest priority things are do, you need to do are and then figuring out how you're going to do those high priority things and then doing them. And that's, that's how we built our IPO at PLX. That's how you build any company. In my experience, sometimes you get lucky, but that's basically what it is. It's a lot, whole lot of hard work. So what I'm looking at is what are their metrics? What are their objectives? How are they think they're going to accomplish those? And then, their, their progress towards those objectives. And if I see good progress happening to the, on the right areas, eh, they'll get there. You know, they'll, be, they'll have some success. If you enjoyed this episode of Scaling with Data, I encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes, as well as check out the solutions we're building for private equity investors at Malartu.co. Huge thanks to Mark Easley for taking time out of his schedule to speak with me. If you want to keep up with Mark, make sure to visit his blog at crowdfundnc.org. I'm Sean Steigerwald, co-founder at Malartu.co. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes or at our blog to catch the next episode.